0: Gospel with Dr. Halista Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. The times of the Gentiles is the times that are awarded to the nations to be rewarded for the good things that they have done, are doing or ever will do. And then there's going to be an end to it. And once that time is done, then you move into the the era where the kingdom of heaven reigns on earth. Instead of the nations ruling over Israel, it's flipped and now it'll go back to the way that it should be. You might say we're going to have a polar shift. And uh, what's going to, ha- you know, what should have been from the time of the garden will be, that the the human beings, not those who have conformed to the image of the beast, but the human beings who are obedient, they will rule over the kingdom of the beasts. Things will be put back right. And I don't want to get too far into it today, but just as a general understanding, this might help somebody who's like, I don't really understand what you mean, the times of the Gentiles. It's a measured time. If you look at the image of the beast, which is the image of a man, the first time we see it in the book of Daniel, when King Nebuchadnezzar sees the image of the gold head, the silver upper torso, the bronze lower torso, the iron legs, and then the mingled clay and iron feet. Each of those represents a specific time of the Gentile nations. They're being awarded and rewarded For whatever good they may have done. Once we get down to the feet, that's where it's going to shatter. And that's where you're going to see the kingdom of heaven ushered in. The second time you see the image of the beast, it's literally in beasts. You're going to see the lion. You're going to see the bear. You're going to see the leopard. And then you're going to see the conglomerate of those, which is Rome, of course. He's that monstrous one with the iron teeth. But as you can see, it's one Man in the image. You can see all these kingdoms. Even though they're separate kingdoms, they're still one. They are still the image of the beast. You have to perceive them together, and as passing on one thing to the next kingdom. So each of those kingdoms passed on something good and something evil to the next kingdom, but it's all mixed up. You kind of see that in the clay and the iron feet. This whole thing's mixed up, and it is the the good that they're doing is tainted. We all know that how you know we've got billionaires out there. They contribute to worthy causes, but do they not also contribute to things we would never, ever sanction? So it's mixed. It's mingled. It's not pure. So the, the best illustration is you're all familiar with the cup of wrath being poured out. Look at time like a cup. Time is like a cup. The things that occur are what are filling up the cup. At one point, remember, in the Torah, he says, for the the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. There's iniquity in that cup. Once that cup is full, that time is up, it's going to be poured out, and the Canaanites are going to be displaced. And he warns the Israelites, don't you do what they did, or you'll be filling up the same cup. (laughs) And I'll scatter you out there, too, which he did. They eventually filled up their cup of iniquity. It's the same thing with the kingdoms of the beast. They each have a cup. They each have a time period that's allotted to them, represented by the cup. When their iniquity basically outdoes their good, that cup of iniquity is going to get up to the brim, and then it's going to have to be poured out. That's And at the end of days, of course, there's going to be another cup whose time has come. That measure and that cup of wrath is also going to be poured out on the nations. Because of their cups. And so that's that's how I tried to describe it to the class this week is if you look at the cup as time, all the cups are kind of the same, you know, just like if you get a set of glasses, you usually get four or eight to a set, right? And that way in the cabinet, you can stack on top of the other because they fit perfectly down inside one another. But when you look at the image of the beast, As the form of a man, you can kind of see how one just sits right down inside the other. So it's one stack, even though it's different cups, it's one. And this is, and they say that when the regime changes, like when Babylon changes to the Medes and the Persians, or when the Persians change to the Greeks, or when the Greeks change to the Romans, that it'll happen so fast. It's just like pouring from this cup into this cup. It's, it's that fast. Um, I don't know if that helps, but if it does help in terms of, oh, a cup represents time sometimes, then that might help. All right. So we want to go back and look at how Yeshua prophesied of the times of the Gentiles. And we want to look at this as possibly two separate time periods as Yeshua prophesies, because in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the prophecy of Betar in the Song of Songs on the mountains of Betar. Well, we know that the only time in history that Betar was important and significant was when the Romans massacred all but one person in the city. And they were massacred because they followed a false messiah, Bar Kokhba. And so there was... One person apparently left to tell the tale, just like there seems to be very few left out of Masada. But that point in history, there's there's going to be a cup change, so to speak, because now the, the time of Jewish self-rule is over. It's done. And it, it didn't achieve self-governance again until what year? 48 in general? Right. And so there's been little battles after that where maybe they they took back more territory. But in general, from the time of 135 AD, which is about when Beitar was uh, destroyed, until 1948, you have a time when it was impossible for Jews to self govern. And they were the only identifiable remnant of Israel left. So the last time. For a long time, that Israel would have any self governance according to a covenant was going to be around 135 AD. And this is the point where the times of the Gentiles during the time of Rome, it's demarcating right there self governance. But if we see Jews begin to self govern again as the last remnant of Israel that's still identifiable does that signal that the times of the gentiles might be reaching the top of the cup right so Luke 21:20 20, what if we read this as two separate time periods one of these periods i think the more you read it the more you'll realize it fits right into the history of the destruction of beitar and the false messiah but if we see a transition with the signs in the sun the moon and the stars then maybe we can look forward instead of backward. Maybe it's a 2 prophecy. So it says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that the desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And of course, the mountains of Betars in Song of Songs, chapter three, where we've been studying. Turn, my beloved, on the mountains. This would be the footsteps of Messiah. So those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are inside the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of punishment, so that uh, all things which have been written will be fulfilled. Woe to those women who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, which I've been watching the news, it seems woe to them these days too, Uh, seems to be a shortage. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. That's already happened. It says Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So from this time, there's going to be no Jewish self-governance or uh, control over the Temple Mount. Now, let's what if now we're looking forward. Because he's saying there's a fulfillment right here. Now, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, distress among the nations. See the shift from Israel or Judea to the nations where they've been scattered in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting from fear and the expectation of the things that are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, remember, the powers of the heavens are those appointed principalities and powers Uh, such as the angels of the four winds. They have a job to do. And in order for the world to come back into harmony, it's said that only King Messiah will be able to bring those four winds into harmony. So they're going to have to be shaken up. And because they each have a different job. Have you ever been on a a team with people and you each had a different job, but you had no idea what the ultimate goal was? (laughs) And you just run it. It was like Keystone Cops, wasn't it? You just ran into each other because you really didn't see I've got this job, but I don't really know what the end goal is. Angels kind of work that way. They they get one job, they get one assignment. And when they have to work cooperatively, it doesn't always go well. Remember Daniel being told I was uh, withstood by the Prince of Persia and I had to get some help here because the principality over Persia that's his job. Look out for Persia. And what I was bringing to you was a message ultimately of their demise. And so there was resistance there. They say only King Messiah can bring those angels of the four winds and all the principalities and powers over the nation into unity to accomplish one purpose. Just like right now, you usually get a prevailing wind. There's one that's always going to be stronger than the others, usually. When all those winds are working at odds to one another, you get crazy weather systems. You know, you get winds where they shouldn't be blowing or when they shouldn't be blowing. You get temperature changes. So in order for this to occur, the powers of the heavens are going to have to be shaken up so that everybody's working on task to bring about this end time fulfillment. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's what we anticipate being brought together, gathered together into the cloud to dwell with King Messiah. But when these things begin to take place, have we seen the beginning? I think we've seen the beginning since 48. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. I don't think we could say that about the massacre at Betar because their redemption was nowhere near at that point. But if we feel like we're a part of a generation where we can begin to see these things come to pass, then he says, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. If you see Israel becoming self-governing again, you need to lift up your head and take a look. Right. So this go. Uh, the next slide is Romans eleven twenty five, And I just we will we'll contrast here. Yeshua prophesied about uh, the times of the Gentiles. What times are they until their cup of iniquity is full? The cup of iniquity has to be full. Paul words it a little bit in Romans eleven twenty five. 25. Uh, he says, He didn't say that. He says, I don't want you, brothers and sisters, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles or ethnos has come in. Right? So there's now a fullness of the Gentiles. If we look at it in reference to the cup being full and the cup representing time, at this point we can say, yes, there's an equivalency of expression here. They're not identical. One is a little bit different nuance than the other, but are they equivalent? Can you understand one from the other? I think you can. I think I don't think he's talking about two different things here, All right? So let's look at the times of the Gentiles. We've got a slide here with some some feet. Looks like they've got a bad fungus on the feet, but that's actually supposed to be clay and iron mixed. And this is going to represent the last beast kingdoms. Because you can see them mingling there. It's not one kingdom. It's all mingled in among the clay. Who is made out of clay? We are. The whole world. We're made out of clay. We're formed out of the earth. But what has infected and infested the clay of the earth is iron. Iron was Rome as an empire. But what did Rome do? It took all the systems that had been used to control large numbers of people before Rome came on the scene. Nebuchadnezzar did it. And if you go back and you study each of these empires, they're going to contribute something different to the, the conglomerate we have today. Then come in the the Persians and the Medes, which, by the way, the Persians and the Medes, they were known because they knew how to party. (laughs) They they could throw a feast. You can see that in the books of Esther. Uh, You can see that in Daniel. That era, they, they definitely knew how to party hardy. They loved luxury. All those things listed in Revelation, the commercial cargoes that the merchants of the earth are mourning over, you can pin that pretty much on the Medes and the Persians. That was one of their contributions. They they loved luxury, and it's even said that in Revelation, you have lived in luxury. Guess what? Then the the Greeks come along, and they're a little more uh, strict until because they're very militaristic. If you've ever remember your your history lessons on the military. How they prepared them for the military in Greece, um, Sparta, especially. You know, if you were weak, if you were a weak infant, they would take you up, put you on a mountain, let you die of exposure. Only the, the strong survived in that society. So they built great military. They're going to add some things. They're going to add military tactics. They're going to add things like theater. Do we still have theaters today? Oh, yeah. Um, what about Olympics? What about sports, gymnasiums, stadiums? And see, the Romans took all these systems and made them theirs. They even took the gods of Greece and pinned Roman names on them. So you had to learn both in high school. If you went where I did, you had to learn the names of both the Greek and the Roman god or goddess, uh, because they were really the same entity. And so all that's happening is you can see how this conglomerate of Rome is being formed. Also, the ability of Alexander to stretch that empire wide and fast. He was the leopard, so he was fast. He had a lot of influence. But what the Greeks specialized in, once they conquered a population, they were really good at maintaining their identity among those nations. With the Persians, as as they incorporated people, they were willing to incorporate stuff from those nations, like to be absorbent. The Greeks were the opposite. They were bronze. They were much tougher. And what would they do? They would set up these systems, these bathhouses, gymnasiums, stadiums, philosophy, education, medicine, every organizing system. It's very attractive. And I don't want to get political, but just as an example, Does socialized health care sound good to you if you don't have any money? Shouldn't everybody be healthy? Mm -hmm. Right. So what can they offer you? They can offer you systems that promise to take care of you when you're sick. Economic systems that can offer Roman soldiers could get a, a retirement. They brought in soldiers. See, the Roman army didn't conquer the world. They conscripted people from every country people group that they conquered. They conscripted soldiers. You you don't have that many Roman soldiers, truly Roman soldiers, but you have these people groups incorporated. Hey, like you'll get regular pay. You can get citizenship. You can get retirement. You can go to the bathhouse. <laughs> right? You can go to the gymnasium, you know, free club membership. Nothing has really changed. All those systems that they use to entice people, Coerce people, organize people. They've extended all over the earth. We're still using their political systems, right? The the medical stuff—it all traces back. We're still using their symbols. We still have the stuff. It's still mingled among us. And I know we we try to create some distance and not depend so much upon those systems. We have to depend on Adonai first. But like I said, it's so infected and infested. you cannot completely divest yourself unless you go live on an island alone. (laughs) Because if there's two of you, you're gonna start organizing, right? (laughs) But this is the idea that the final time or the final era of the Gentiles will be characterized by the proliferation of these organized systems. Later, we'll study the leopard spots of Greece And see how that pretty much prophesies of how these organized systems have worked. Because they don't change. They change people. Assimilation. Remember the Hellenistic Jews and the Maccabees and Hanukkah and that whole story? It's effective. It's effective. So it's a system that they use. Um, And so Israel is told, you're going to have to wait until this time is up. You're going to have to weather this kingdom, Rome, which I believe applied to that era up until the time of the the slaughter of Betar. The Roman Empire lasted a little longer, but became very weak. And eventually you can see the weakness in the clay. It morphed into uh, what we would today say, well, probably most people would want, want to point to the Roman church. Don't do that. Any system can be commandeered. Right. You have to look at the people. What do they believe? What do they believe they're engaging in? You have to factor that in. Uh, but just looking at the Pope and saying the Pope is the beast, that's that's not right. You have to look at all the systems with which Rome still rules the world. They're very effective. So once these idolatrous Gentiles, and we're t- not talking about covenant Gentiles, believing Gentiles you know, people who are walking in the faith of Abraham, but once the idolatrous Gentiles have received their earthly rewards, this time is fulfilled, the feet and the toes are done, and then Messiah is going to return, it says, from the north, from a hidden palace in the north, and he will crush the iron and clay feet that have um, prevented Israel's head from being lifted and Sion, from that kingdom coming in. Uh, So we have another graphic here that kind of shows you the whole uh, image of the beast with all the kingdoms. And Zephaniah 14.9 says, and this is from the Arch Scroll, it says, or it might be Zechariah, Hashem will be king over all the land on that day. Hashem will be one, and his name will be one what day is he prophesying of? They believe this is the time of the termination of the Roman kingdom down to the toes. Every place he's infected will be destroyed by the rock that's cut out without hands, which of course is King Messiah. And they say this is the time when that wicked kingdom, Rome, which represents all wicked kingdoms, is going to be brought down. And The kingdom of heaven at that time, that's when it will be revealed to the world. Right now, it's not revealed to the world. There's still some secrets out there because the nations are not pursuing him. You have to pursue him to find him. What did the disciples have to do? They had to leave their families behind. You know, they had kids, they had wives, they had jobs, and they left all that to follow around a Galilean preacher, but he was worth it. He was worth it. We will probably also, if we want to cling to him, have to leave some things behind. It doesn't mean that we're losing them forever because we have a story there was it Peter's mother-in-law. you know, it's it's not that they severed all contact, but they prioritized the, the kingdom of heaven at that point over their personal things. You have to know your times, just like Yeshua said, we'll fast. There, my disciples will fast after I'm gone. But while the bridegroom is here, they're not going to fast. You have to know your particular time. So that's why I'm going to talk again about the hours. And I don't think it's that difficult, unless you're at that place in your walk where you're just trying to find a firm step in front of you, because maybe your whole world has been shaken as it pertains to Bible study. And, oh, I didn't know this was still in effect. Oh, I didn't know I could do this. Oh, I didn't know this was for everybody. And you feel like, well, you know, the people who taught me left some significant things out. Maybe they did, but it was probably because those significant things were left out when it was taught to them. So in order to balance ourselves, to orient ourselves, we're we're trying to nail things down. As black and white, we have to believe that one minute is sixty seconds, and you can't tell me otherwise, right? I have to believe that a, a year is twelve months, and don't tell me otherwise. I don't, I don't know how to function if an hour is not one twenty-fourth of a day, and it's hard enough getting my mind around evening and morning, one day and the day beginning at sundown. Those are difficult things because it's stretching our concept not just of time, but what we thought we knew. And it's not always an easy transition for people to make. So they kind of go through this period where you're not doing a whole lot of good if you're not teaching them things that are fast and sure. If they're not fast facts that they can nail down. Because when you look at the figurative language of scripture, and then you realize at some point, oh, wait a minute, an hour is not an hour. A month is more than a month or maybe a month is less than a month. These, yeah, it's, you're building a layer in there. Oh no, wait a minute. I don't know if you're trying to deceive me again. But if we can take them back to the scriptures and show them these patterns, then we can begin to open up a place of their mind that they've closed off. So they won't be deceived anymore. Okay, now you can risk showing a little daylight, crack that door just a little bit. Otherwise there's going to be things in scriptures you can't see. They are a little more abstract, but because Yeshua is going to go on and talk to them about the night watches and his return, when the Son of Man returns, he said says, if it's the second watch or even the third, well, most people don't know what the three watches of the night are, much less the hours of the day. We don't study those things in Sunday school, right? It's just not been handed down to them. If you don't know, it, don't feel bad. It wasn't the way you were brought up, but now you have the opportunity. And so we can see it as opportunity, not a somebody cheated me out of something I should have known, right? You have to be grateful. And if we're grateful, then he gives us more. If we're just mean and nasty, then you know what? We'll fixate on one thing and we won't be able to move until we move. He won't move. (laughs) We'll have to move. So what is an hour? I think it's going to help us to understand these times of the Gentiles, And appointed times, because our our Torah portion day, it included the appointed times. This is one place where there's a lot of not intentional ignorance, unintentional ignorance. They've not been taught the appointed times of scripture. So how can we expect them to know the appointed times of scripture unless somebody tells them? Then it's up to them. To investigate further, ask more questions, or whatever, but until they begin investigating and asking those questions, they're not even going to understand the hours of Yeshua on the cross and why they're so meticulously recorded because it'll it'll send an extra signal to anybody who knows the hours of the day. the when he goes out to pray in the garden, knowing that he's doing these in the watch this in the watches of the night, and he's saying to the disciples, "You really need to stay alert." You need to be alert in the night watches. Uh, So we're going to review a little bit about the hours here. And in scripture, and there might be more than this, but this is simplification, I think. Hours can be simple divisions of daylight time in the temple service. In this case, an hour is not 60 minutes. There could possibly be a day in the year where it would end up being 60 minutes. That's possible. But what they're doing for the temple service, from the time of sunup until the time of sundown, it was divided into 12 hours. So that hour was not 60 minutes. Maybe it's a little bit less. Maybe it's a little bit more. It can also be 24 hours in a literal day. It can be the 24 hours of the day. It can be a month of days. That's what we're going to look at. What are you talking about? Month of days. Well, once you see how the the synchronization of events happens, you can see how an hour is like it says here on the last bullet point, it's an appointed time of action. Right? My hour has come. Remember hearing that? My hour has come, or his hour has not yet come. An appointed time has not yet come. So that hour, you have to know context to be able to run through the tabs in your in your mind. And say, okay, which kind of hours the scripture talking about right here, and you can see why that scares newcomers. Don't mess with my time. <laughs> I know there's sixty minutes in an hour, and I know there's twenty four hours in a day, and don't mess with that. But they'll get they'll get their balance, and then they'll be able to um, look at these things that are maybe less tangible and less obvious, especially if you know reading Hebrews really. Valuable, at least being able to use a concordance, even if you can't read the Hebrew, really valuable, where you can cross reference the actual word that's being used. So we'll look here at this first chart. And I know the calendar is often a, a matter of controversy, and that's good. You know what's good? It means we're interested in knowing what He wants us to do when He wants us to do it. Again, we have to be grateful that we've even been brought to a place to disagree, right? So you put 10 Torah believers in one room, they're probably gonna have differences in how they read the calendar or how they apply the calendar, right? We're moving in a direction, I believe, a recalibration very soon. If these are the footsteps of Messiah coming up that we're beginning to hear the rumbles, then I think he'll be able, just like Moses Before they start, he says, this is going to be the beginning of months for you. Recalibrate, set your watches now. And I think Yeshua will do no less than that. I think he will help us to recalibrate our watches. Uh, At any rate, when you introduce a second method of reckoning months, it freaks a lot of people out if they're not aware that there are two ways of reckoning months. And it has to do with the... The months beginning in the spring in Aviv, that would be the first of the months. But how do you calculate a year? Well, you don't calculate a year until you get over to the seventh month. And he's like, what are you talking about? You're, you're stretching my brain. How can that possibly be true? You can see the patterns in scripture already. If you're paying attention, we have seven months that are critical in terms of calculating the appointed times. There's a little window of seven months, which leaves us five months outside of that window, causing a problem. <laughs> so, but they're not really causing a problem. Look how many times the sevens are mentioned in the Book of Revelation, and the twelves, twelve this, twelve that, twelve this, twelve that, seven this, seven that, seven. That. So there's a relationship between the seven and the twelve. Right? There's a there's an element of perfection in the seven. It's going to go on with the 12 they're going to be brought into perfection so we've got the beginning of the months that it's going to begin in the month of nisan or aviv or some people just want to call it the first month and if you're reading scripture you you get that certain months they had nicknames way back when um like bull you know was one of them at any rate uh, your first month of course is going to be the big marker there's going to be Passover. But your seventh month, the big marker there's going to be the fall feast because your fall feasts are all going to occur in that seventh month. Uh, At any rate, here are the hours. And of course, this is, you're not going to find this specifically in scripture. You're not going to be able to flip to a chapter or a verse. But when I pull up another chart, and show you the synchronization of events, it might make more sense. So in the first month on the month calendar, which would be the seventh month on the civil calendar, because remember the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah, it's the going out of the year, it's the turn of the year, because you're gonna blow the, the shofar for the jubilee at the fall feast in the seventh month. So you're proclaiming a jubilee year, it's marking a year, whereas over here it's marking a month. It does, how many of you? Had, it took you a while to wrap your mind around to, you know, uh, synchronize calendars. But yeah, it's it's not easy. But we get it anyway. I mean, we get fiscal years. You know, in the Bureau of Prisons, they have a fiscal year. Government institutions they have a fiscal year for accounting purposes. So if you think of it like that, it's it's a little easier. So on. The first month or the seventh month, depending on which one you're using, this is um, the understanding is Elohim blew breath into man, like Adam, the breath blew into him in that first month. But it's also an hour, also an hour in that time of action. That first month was an hour in the second month or the eighth, if you're using the civil calendar. And I noticed, too, how the first and the seventh don't change. They just swap places. The first will, you know, uh, sit beside the seventh. But when you get down to the seventh month, it'll be sitting beside the first. Second month, it says, man was placed in the garden. (coughs) Is that the month we're in? Month of ER, ER yeah. 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 the slow donkey. <laughs> the third month or the third hour, which is going to be the ninth on the civil calendar. It says, Man was commanded concerning food. Now, are we supposed to take this literally? No. No, this is this is a this is something the rabbis do to teach a principle. Now, could it literally be true? Sure, it could be. I don't know if it is or not. We're not presenting it as literally true. We're presenting it as a teaching principle to help us understand the hours of Messiah. In the fourth month, it says man transgressed. Do we know that, that some bad things happened in the month of Tammuz? Oh, really bad things happened in the month of Tammuz. And I'll overlay it so you can see in just a sec. In the fifth month, man was judged. By Elohim. That's going to be the month of Av. Significant things happen in the month of Av in terms of judgment? Oh, yeah. In the sixth month, it says man was pardoned. That's the month of Elul. Uh, We're blowing what? The shofar. We're wanting to hear the voice of the shofar. We want to hear him pardon us. In the seventh month, now we're going back to a pre-beginning. If he blew breath into man, what did he blow it into? Well, there had to be a substance there. So they say in the seventh month, he had the idea when he's discussing this with the Elohim, with the angels, the, the judges of the heavenly court. He says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. So he's thinking about it. They say this occurred in the seventh month. In the eighth month, he's consulting with the angels. There's apparently a dialogue. If if this is what an earthly court looks like, which we probably get that more during the time of the monarchs when the king held court, but the king had the ultimate authority. Now democracy doesn't help us understand that too well. The consultation, the ninth month, it says he began gathering the earth. Do you remember where the earth is? It's thought that he gathered from under the altar because that's home for everybody. The 10th month, it says he took it and he kneaded it like bread. Hopefully we're getting ready for Shavuot. He's needing <laughs> like bread. It hurts. 11th um, month is he weaved it like a tapestry of the tabernacle. and And in the Psalms, isn't it King David that talks about how you formed me in my mother's womb and how you knit me together and so forth. In the 12th month or the 12th hour, it says he formed it. He put the finishing touches on it, which takes you back to the first month. And now he's going to breathe life into it. So if we look at the next chart, you can see this is pretty accurate in terms of the action hour of that month. In the first month, Passover, what happens? A nation resurrects out of Egypt. He breathes new life into them. Basically, he's resurrecting them from the dead. In the second month, it says man was placed in the garden. It was a perfect place. Well, we count seven perfect sevens during the counting of the Omer in that second month. In the third month or the third hour, it says man was commanded concerning food. Well, in the third month, they were given manna. They were given bread. And they were given the Torah at Shavuot. They were commanded concerning the bread that they ate, the spiritual bread. In the fourth month, says man transgressed. So it's the fourth hour, the fourth month. Well, in that particular month of transgression, we have the golden calf. We have the tablets broken. We have judgment on the sinners. We have Jerusalem's walls breached. We have abominations of desolation placed on the Temple Mount in that month when uh, Yeshua says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, you already know what month it occurred in. And you know which month it's likely to occur in again. Uh, Moss. Moses, uh, I'm sure they called him Moss for short. (laughs) Moses, little Mo, Moss intercedes on the mountain the second time, trying to alleviate these 40 days of anger of the Holy One. In the fifth hour, the fifth month, it says man was judged by Elohim. Well, in the month of Av, both temples were destroyed. You've got the evil report of the spies where they can't go in. Uh, Bad stuff happens. In the sixth hour, the sixth month, it says man was pardoned. Well, in the month of the Lul, of course, we begin to hear the shofar. The prayer is called the slichot, which means forgive me. I have erred. Please pardon me. I willfully sinned. Those begin, Moses goes up and he gets the second set of tablets, and then he seeks that name of mercy, yod and that's when the anger seems to have kind of waned a little bit. In the seventh month, where it says man's creation arose in thought, well, that seventh month is significant. I mean, you couldn't possibly cram everything significant about the seventh month into a little uh, chart. But we know that at that time, we get the unsealed decrees on the Feast of Trumpet concerning our future. And at the end of Yom Kippur, they become sealed decrees. And then by Sukkot, the execution of the decrees began. We know this is the month when Adonai forgave the Israelites for the golden calf. And we've got a second set of tablets here. In the eighth month or the eighth hour, says Elohim consulted with the angels. Well, this is the month when the temple was completed. But this is also the month when Jeroboam's golden calf was set up. Ninth month or ninth hour, Elohim gathered his earth. Well, this is um, the month of the Sukkot Sheni. If you'll remember, it's called Hanukkah. But in the beginning, it was considered a Sukkot Shani. It's a reformation of what had been destroyed. The 10th hour, the 10th month says Elohim needed it. And kneading is not pleasant, by the way. How many of you have ever made bread? Hard on the bread, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's that's when the siege against Jerusalem began. It was tough. But why was he needing them? He was going to have to reform them. And then in the, the 11th month. I don't know what happened to my 12th, but uh, it says Elohim weaved it. That's the new year for trees in terms of uh, bringing in your first fruits and your tithes. And this is going to be the time where we hear Deuteronomy 111. It's going to be in this particular month when you have the, the summary of the journey, the whole journey, kind of a story, a narrative by Moses. So the next chart, all I really did there that's different is I put the names of the tribes. Remember each tribe kind of went with one of the months in terms of the, the planetary journey. So you can see the how each of the tribes even has a, a quality that we would attach to a particular month. Um, if we're in the month of ER, the tribe would be Issachar. What was the what was the special gift of Issachar? They knew the times. What are we doing right now? We're learning the times. We're not going to spend a lot of time right there, but at least I wanted to give an overview and do it a little more slowly than maybe I did the last time. So let's ask ourselves the question: When is an hour? That well, has multiple definitions, so we know that we have to know the context. This one you know. When do you recline at the table? As as the as you, uh, after you eat well, the right certain cups at Passover. You know, was this cup full? <laughs> right? You're kind of marking the end of a a time or a fullness of things like salvation and sanctification and redemption and so forth. So think of Yeshua at his either Passover Seder or pre-Passover Seder. I'm good with either. If we want to say he died at exactly the time of the Passover sacrifice the next day, then perhaps this was what's today called a ribby's tish, that the, the rabbi would have a Seder with his disciples or his students on the previous night so he could be with his own family for the actual Passover the next night. And he's treating it very much like a Passover. So you can tell he's teaching as they engage. But what is interesting here, and this is going, it depends on where you do Passover, I guess, as to whether you still do this. But do you remember when we first started doing Passover, who would go around and wash the hands of the participants? You might have the head of a household, the master of the household. He's serving his servants. Now, some parables Yeshua tells, he's more like, why in the world would the master serve the servant? No, the servant serves the master. That has a particular context. But in this context, there's another lesson to learn. He's talking about, I think, at least partly, when you enter the Garden of Eden, the tradition is that, first of all, you're going to be greeted by Adam with great joy. And that's why I don't think Miriam knew which garden she was in when she went to look for the body of Yeshua. And he says, woman, why are you weeping? Why? And then the, the angel said it to Why are you weeping? Why? We're greeting you with great joy here. Something wonderful has happened. There's a resurrection. But it said when you go into the garden, the Adam will greet you with great joy. And then you will sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, unless you don't believe it. And what he told the Sadducees is because you don't believe it you're still going to see it but you're not going to be able to participate in it. You're going to be afar off, just like the rich man could see Lazarus afar off but he couldn't cross the gulf. You have to believe it's going to happen if you want to sit at the table. How many of you can do that? I can I can believe. I believe. I believe. Yeah. There's a resurrection. <laughs> so the master is serving his servants instead of the servants serving him. At this particular meal, he is serving us. He has already provided everything he asks for. So <clears throat> Yeshua said, I'm coming in an hour which you think not. And we say, wait a minute, we know the appointed times. We know he's going to come at an appointed time. We can know that, but do we know the exact hour? that he will return. He says, no, you don't. (laughs) Probably for a reason. But he says, you can still be alert at that hour. I don't have to catch you sleeping. Remember him asking his disciples in the night watches, couldn't you stay awake for an hour? (laughs) It's Passover. Wake up. At any rate, his servants don't think he's coming at a certain hour, but nevertheless, they're going to be prepared. His servants are going to be prepared. They're going to be alert. And he says they're going to come up. They're going to ascend at this certain hour of preparation. Just like Psalm 27, which we covered, you know, a few weeks ago, 20, Psalm 27, 10. It says, the Lord will take me up even when, as I'm surrounded by my enemies. My enemies are on every side. And all of a sudden, bam, I see him sitting there in the cloud. He's dwelling in the cloud. And maybe I didn't think he would come at that hour. But what is an hour? is it an hour of the day? Is it a month? Maybe we thought he was coming in the seventh month and he actually shows up in the first or he shows up in the third. What if he shows up? Yes, at an appointed time, but not the one we thought. What if we're actually entering into a door at Pesach? That door will lead us to Shavuot. And this is where it's thought that we will be sealed. That those who are righteous will be sealed at Shavuot because it has to do with going to the mountain and affirming the covenant. So you just kind of promised back here with the blood on the doorpost, you were promising to do things that you hadn't even been told to do yet. That's salvation. Save me, Yeshua, from death. And I promise I will stay on the path and find out the path that you've put before me, not just with my nation, my new identity as Israel, but also personally. The things that you set before me to do, I will do. We will do and we will hear is what they said at the mountain. So you reconfirm, you reaffirm the covenant there at Sinai. Moses said to those who are standing here and those who are not, because you were still there. If you agreed, you were still there at the covenant. It's that this is the hour of your sealing. This is the time. The feasts of the seventh month are still important, but they are considered more for those who are intermediate or lukewarm. Remember the the, the assembly at Laodicea. Yeshua says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're still lukewarm at Sukkot, remember Laodicea. it aligns with Sukkot on the feast. Each of those seven assemblies aligns with the feast. Sukkot is the last one, Laodicea. If you were going to repent, it should have happened by the end of Yom Kippur. You were told to do it at the Feast of Trumpets at Rosh Hashanah. You had 10 days, 10 terrible days. If you didn't repent before the closing of the gates, that means you are at Sukkot or Laodikia, still in a state of rebellion and unrepentance, but you still kind of got one foot over here. You still have your identity as a believer over here, but you're not living like it. You are not living like you believe he's on the throne and you will be judged. In fact, we're living in this case, as though we don't think he's going to judge us for anything. And it doesn't matter if you're saved or not, you will still undergo judgment. We don't hear that enough, but that's how we stay alert, knowing that he actually makes it a little bit harder every year. If you're a believer, your path does get a little bit harder every year, but you're you're exercising your spiritual muscles and you're able to take more 10 years into your walk then you could take the month after you were saved when you didn't really know anything but the blood on the doorpost. Will that save you from death? Yes. But again, the times of the Gentiles, everything is rewarded. Good is rewarded. So is sin, sin is rewarded too. It has its own reward. We just don't want that one. Right? So here's what he says in Luke 12, 37. Here's what he says. <laughs> That's me. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will prepare himself to serve and have them recline at the table, and he will come up and serve them. It'll be like a Pesach. You see the Pesach pictures here? Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third, where are you supposed to have the lamb eaten by? What's the recommended time? Midnight. Midnight, about midnight. That concludes about midnight is the conclusion of the first watch of the night. There's three watches of the night. So from sundown until about midnight, that's when you should eat the lamb. That's the first watch. Yeshua doesn't even mention it because if you've eaten the lamb in the first watch of the night, there's really nothing to be concerned about in the second or the third. But if you failed to eat the lamb in the first watch of the night, you're in jeopardy at this point. It's getting closer and closer to sunup and you're not supposed to have anything left at sunup. So he says, the second watch, like, please eat the lamb. If you haven't finished it off, please eat the lamb in the second watch. And if you wait even till the third, there's hope. But now you're at risk of it becoming sunup without your having realized it. And there's certain signs of sunup that are not signs to be seen, but signs to be heard with the ear. One of them is a baby nursing. Remember, he says, what are those who are nursing in those days? Because In the morning, watch. If you hear that baby nursing, you know it's already a new day, and now the time is up. One is a man and wife talking in bed in the early morning hours. They say, when you hear that sound, it's already the new day. It's too late. Does Yeshua mention a man and a woman? Yeah. So he's the implication here is this alertness. You need to be alert. Do your job that first watch of the night. Be alert. So he says, whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour, so is an hour always an hour? It could be a month. It could be an appointed time. If he had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready. Because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not think He will. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook and our YouTube channel.